podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Every year, more than 5,000 killers get away with murder. Since 1980, more than 250,000 cases have gone cold, where either a murder took place or a missing person was considered to have experienced serious bodily harm. Needless to say, there's a cold case crisis in America. But we believe families deserve answers. Victims deserve a voice. And no one should be a statistic. I'm Anna Eaglin. I'm Jim Brown. I'm Ashley Zanjawa, and we're the co-founders of Uncovered, where we're empowering the true crime community to turn their interests into advocacy by combining all publicly available information with an engaged membership to crowdsource gaps in the investigation of unsolved cases of the murdered or missing. By combining all information in a comprehensive database, visualizing the timeline of events, and overlaying each onto a map of locations, We're bringing case details together in a way that's never been done before. Our members are able to connect with fellow citizen detectives, learn techniques on what to look for and how to help, and subscribe to the cases that interest them to be updated when new information is found. We count on active participation from our members to submit their research publicly or anonymously through a verification and substantiation process. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can make a difference. Will you join us? For more information or to see how you can help, please visit Uncovered.com. Hey, Kevin, it's Caitlin here from Complicit. As you know, Hillary and I love a mystery, especially a historical one. And this case defines a mystery. Who was the real D.B. Cooper and how did he have the cojones to do what he did? I think most people would assume he didn't survive the jump, given the incredibly inhospitable conditions he was free-falling into, and rookie mistake to have your backup shoot a training one. And that money that was found, that's kind of all the evidence you need right there, or is it? No body was ever found, was it? To me, D.B. Cooper seems like he really pulled off a gentleman's crime. I mean, you put on a suit and tie, have a classy drink calmly call over a flight attendant to relay the message that, oh, by the way, I'm going to need four parachutes and $200,000, K thanks, almost reminds me of that show Lupin, and even the parallel with the comic book may be inspiring his alias. It's a case that puts a smile on my face because it's one where, in a strange way, you kind of want the bad guy to win, and he clearly got away with it, even if he didn't make it. But now seriously, where is Lauren DeMolo? Let's get the FBI on that one stat. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. Well, welcome back to another Jury Room Aftermath episode. On today's episode, I am joined by Lindsay from the Ye Old Crime Podcast, which is also another member of the Oracle Network. Make sure you go and check out the Oracle Network, as well as the Ye Old Crime Podcast. Lindsay, say hi. How are you doing today? And introduce yourself. Hi. Uh, I'm honored to be here. So, um as Kevin mentioned, I'm Lindsay. I'm one of the hosts of Yield Crime Podcast, which is a show that I do with my sister, 
where we cover historic crimes that take place pre-1900. So we've covered cases from like witch trials to um, poisoners. So kind of a variety of cases. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting finding all these different cases that I had never heard of before in history that are very interesting. But yeah. Oh, I'm sure. And the way that they handled their business, you know, before the 1900s and and the way crime was dealt with was a completely different uh, animal in itself, right? Yeah. And, you know, depending on where you were as well, like that would also kind of determine how they dealt with the crimes as well. Because, you know, there are some places where, you know, they were hanging people until fairly recently you know, like the 1920s. Um, and then there are other places where they're just kind of like, we'll just put you in jail forever or we'll burn you at the stake. It kind of depends on what your crime was and <laughs> where you were in history. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to kind of um, go through and read about the different crimes and then also discover how similar so many of them are even though they're not, they didn't occur like in the same country or the same time period. Like it's just, it's fascinating how history has this way of repeating itself, even um, when it's different people in different places. So we all have that kind of common thread where there are certain crimes that people just continue to do, assuming that they're going to be the ones that get away with it. And then <laughs> they don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what would be your most either interesting or weirdest thing that you have found before the 1900s? So one of the weirdest things that I've covered was back, I think it was prior to the 1800s in England, specific and also in specifically in France. They did it a lot more in France. They used to put animals on trial for certain crimes. Um so particularly pigs, which I feel very bad about the pigs, but they would put them on trial like if they attacked a child or if they, um, you know, ruined some crops or something. Um, some of the funniest crimes were they tried to try, a, I guess, an infestation of weevils. In England, because they had gotten into some a vineyard and destroyed a bunch of grapes that they were going to use to make um, communion wine. Okay. <laughs> and so how, they were. But, but I mean, how would you go about putting an animal or even a, like an insect, like a weevil, on trial? Yeah, and I what happened was like back in the Middle Ages and things like that. Their conception of. Uh, religion was that everything is one of God's creatures. So in order to um, be able to try an animal or something, you'd have to prove that they did something and basically excommunicate them from the church. So then you could punish them. <laughs> it was okay, the weirdest. It's the weirdest thing. Cause it's like, okay, obviously if you're no longer like one of God's creatures, then we can punish you and we're going to like exterminate you for, you know, ruining God's crops of, you know, wine grapes and things like that. So, 
But yeah, it was extremely bizarre going through and reading about some of these cases of how they would try animals and stuff. And there was like a cow that they put on trial and they ended up burying it because (laughs) they were like, no one can have anything to do with this cow. You can't like take any of the meat. You can't take any of the hide to like make it into leather or anything. You know, we're just going to have to bury it. And it was, that is, that's something, that's something else. (laughs) Hey, let's, let's put an animal on trial. And I mean, and not, you know, use the meat or, you know, use the byproducts. Let's just bury it and call it a day. Yep. Well, that's an interesting, I'd never heard that before. Cause I mean, you know, (laughs) you, you learn little bits and pieces here, but you don't really know the inner workings unless you, you know, deep dive into the situations. Right. Yep. Yep. So, well, I know you like a good mystery and on today's episode, we are diving into the DB Cooper mystery, the conspiracy theory that is DB Cooper and the only known hijacking to not be solved in American history. What are your theories before we dive into it? As I kind of mentioned before we started, I feel like it has to be someone who had an idea of what they were doing. Like someone who had some sort of experience, whether it's they used to be a pilot of some sort, or they had to have some sort of knowledge of how like a parachute works and things like that. And, uh just because i don't think you're layman just walking off like coming in off the street your standard criminal would know okay we need to have like a certain height you know as far as safety concerns so when i jump out of the plane i'm not just gonna like fly into the engine or something and right (laughs) right and that's you know knowing your altitudes and what you should be speed uh what your speed should be and so on and so forth is definitely knowledge that you're gonna have to have to pull off a hijacking like this yeah exactly like your standard you know bank robber isn't necessarily gonna know that versus someone who has some sort of experience in i'm trying to think of the word you know what i mean (laughs) I absolutely aeronautics there we go (laughs) I can't think of I can't read your mind but I know what you're trying to say right you 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 get where I'm going with that (laughs) absolutely so I was lucky to have some a friend of mine uh record some stuff for us uh for everybody page from the reverie true crime podcast um so I'm going to introduce you guys to her and then uh, we're going to, she helped me with a couple of different people that I didn't cover within my episode um, because she has done her own episode, which I will link to that in the show notes. So that way, anybody who wants to go check that out, you're more than welcome to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paige does, did a really great job on the episode as well. So let me introduce her to you guys and uh, we'll get into the episode. Hello, Kevin and listeners of the Jury Room Podcast. This is Paige from Reverie True Crime. First and foremost, I want to thank you, Kevin, for letting me record and send in some information, opinions, and to get your feedback. I also did an episode on D.B. Cooper and this mystifying, extremely mind-boggling event. So a lot of this information is coming from my episode, so you can interject and comment on anything at all. Hearing your opinions on the information will be so interesting. So that's Paige. And like I said, she did do her own episode. 
Um, so I know within my episode, I covered a few different suspects, um, but she's got one which I will link for, for pictures, for reference for everybody below. So that way they can see what we're talking about. Um, but she has a couple of different people that I definitely think could be potential suspects. Mm -hmm. And this is other than, you know, what I had covered. So her first suspect that we're going to talk about uh, from Paige is uh, Robert Rackstraw. In the 1970s, he was guilty of grand theft. He had $75,000 in bad checks, and he may have killed his stepdad. Now, he was found innocent in his stepdad's murder, and after he was let go in 1978, he faked his own death. He made up lies, making a mayday from an airplane in Northern California. He was sentenced to two years in prison for check fraud and theft of an airplane. Robert was also a Vietnam veteran. Reported by the Mail, quote, Rackstraw was interviewed about his link to the case in 1979, where he was asked explicitly to state whether he was or wasn't D.B. Cooper and with a wry smile visible across his face, he told the KNBC reporter, Uh, I'm afraid of heights. An Army vet from Indiana said that he used the skills that he learned to break the codes that were printed on letters that were allegedly written by D.B. Cooper in 1971 and 72. His findings track everything back to Robert Rackstraw. In 2016, there was a book written by Thomas J. Colbert and Tom Selassie, and it's called The Master Outlaw. They both investigated Robert Rackstraw's insane past five years. They, along with many others, were convinced he was D.B. Cooper. We may never know for sure because Robert did pass away in July of 2019 due to a heart attack. But what he said before he died was a little suspicious. So there were these FBI documents that were made public, and through those, we find out that the FBI agents had their sights set on Robert Rackstraw, and he was their main suspect this whole time. Robert was a U.S. Army pilot he was a paratrooper, he was an explosives expert, as well as a CIA black ops man. After Robert Rackstraw died in 2019, Thomas J. Colbert, a 62-year-old cold case investigator, producer, and author from Ventura, California, got the secret bureau files, but he had to go through hell and a long legal fight for them. See, so kind of what you go back to is <clears throat> he definitely has a lot of experience within, you know, jumping out of planes, explosives, yep. and so on and so forth. Yep. So he's definitely a viable suspect. Yeah. And if you look at his photographs from when he was younger, like kind of around the time that the D.B. Cooper crime took place, he does have very similar um, facial features to the... Um, illustration that was made of the suspect and 
yeah, like Paige said, he has a lot of the experience that someone who would have who could have pulled this off would have needed to be able to, you know, know what they needed to be able to jump from the plane, know what they were doing as far as making even if it was a fake bomb to make it look like a real bomb. You know, so he definitely had the skills that someone would have needed to be able to pull this off. So I can definitely see how he could be a very viable suspect. And it's interesting to hear that he was their main suspect and that they still couldn't pin anything on him. Right. Exactly. And it was, you know, obviously apparently clear that he had a, a criminal record, you know, as well as, you know, committing petty crimes as well as committing, you know, potentially, you know, bigger crimes and being able to get away with it. Yep. Yeah, because that's something, too, that you have to consider about this case. Like, this is obviously someone where this wouldn't be their first crime. Like, I don't think you just wake up one day and you're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hijack a plane. Right. That's (laughs) on my bucket list. That's the first thing I'm going to do in my criminal (laughs) career is try to hijack a plane. Like, so, yeah, this is definitely something where it wouldn't be the person's first rodeo. So, um yeah, the fact that he has a criminal history, the fact that he has all the skills um, from past uh, military experience, you know, a working knowledge of how all that works. Yeah, I could definitely see how he would be one of their major suspects. He said, quote, this solves one of America's greatest criminal mysteries. Three separate intelligence community sources have told us that he was a CIA freelancer before and after the hijacking, and that's why they protected him. The new files quote leading FBI investigators who were convinced that Rackstraw could be Cooper. He got away with the ransom, invested it in property, and the FBI turned a blind eye flat-out lying and covering up his crimes to avoid embarrassing the government. The Bureau's suspected propaganda operation involved both the media and the World Wide Web. Thomas Colbert found a specific entry written on DropZone.com, which is a blog for people who research D.B. Cooper. An FBI Norjack agent named Larry Carr had made a post that said, quote, There are 1,057 sub-files in the Cooper case, each representing a subject that has been investigated. There is not one piece of verifiable evidence linking a subject to the case, end quote. Now, this is around the time that the airlines had to have the Cooper veins installed, which were made so nobody could let down the stairs from the inside like D.B. Cooper did. There were a few copycats before the installment. The D.B. Cooper incident changed the way that our airlines handled security measures. This is basically when they started X-ray. And that's, you know, another point is that incidents like this and throughout history have definitely changed, you know, air travel to what it is today, right? Yep. Yeah. It was kind of the start of the whole taking off your shoes and all of that fun stuff. But right. And that, you know, that, and that was, you know, 
a period of time where the airlines were just giving what the ransom, you know, what ransom, ransomer, well, that is not a word, giving the ransoms, you know, to people who were hijacking the planes and so on and so forth. You know, they gave up whatever the, the person wanted. They were giving it to them. Yeah. And a lot of that was because they didn't want the bad press. Like they didn't want to be the airline that didn't give, you know, the hijacker what they wanted and then have something happen where it created a huge scandal. Like if someone got hurt or, you know, things like that. So it was kind of like, yep, just give them what they want because we don't want any bad press. So spraying luggage and all of those kind of things. To add to the unfavorable FBI records, Thomas had his own team of volunteer investigators who were led by many former FBI agents. They went on to discover more than 100 items which implicated Robert Rackstraw. They found physical evidence, DNA, forensic evidence, as well as things that were told to them, as in gossip and hearsay, as well as documents that held evidence. Thomas wanted to get opinions on everything they had gathered from top-notch experts. One of these people being Joseph P. Russo-Niello. He used to be an FBI agent, U.S. attorney, and a San Fran Law School dean. Joseph said, quote, I've reviewed the materials provided by your investigative team and have concluded that the evidence is clear and convincing that Rackstraw was Cooper. So, this information pretty much came out in 2019, but all of this was first known to the FBI in 2015. Thomas Colbert recently got his hands on the FBI emails and transcripts, which did say that the director's senior executives dismissed a collaboration that they had going on for five years with Thomas and his investigative team and that they would no longer be accepting any of their work and what they find. So, by what Thomas says, the FBI lied about everything in 2016 when they said they looked at all of the evidence, debunked it all by saying it was just not strong enough evidence, and in the end, the FBI said there is not anything new out there about D.B. Cooper. Thomas's investigative and that's where the conspiracy is born, you know, it, yep. it's, uh, that's where, you know, the internet goes crazy with situations like this is because, you know, there's cover-ups or they don't release everything and, and then people's imagination run, runs wild, right? Yeah. And I found it interesting when Paige mentioned earlier that he had ties to the government as far as like the CIA and things like that, where I could definitely see them hushing it up because they don't want to look stupid like we had this guy he was working for us and he did this he committed this crime under our noses you know and we still let him get away you know like that's something that i definitely could could see them being like we can't let anybody know about this (laughs) (laughs) right the other way (laughs) team took note of Robert Rackstraw's army picture from 1970, and they found that in an old file from the Pentagon. It was said that the picture had 
nine points of match when it was put next to the sketch of D.B. Cooper. So, I mean, that's where, you know, the picture comes in, uh, which, again, I will, you know, share that in the show notes for everybody to look at them. But in my opinion, I just don't see it. Not with this guy. Uh, there's there's some similarities, but it's not mm -hmm. it's not an exact match. And I understand the sketch artist isn't going to be 100 percent. Right. Yep. Um, but I just don't see it. I don't see. Like I said, there's some similarities, but the eyes are what, you know, is telling to me, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, you know, his eyes kind of slant, you know, towards his ears down mm -hmm. as to where in the, in the, the, the sketch, they don't, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Well, and in, in hearing about this guy, he reminds me a lot of, um, Frank Abagnale, who was the main um, character in the Catch Me If You Can movie, where he was also a con artist that got away with a bunch of stuff. When he was like 18, he was able to fly a plane because people thought he was a pilot. Um, and he had similar things where he worked for the government for a while and then um, managed to run away with a bunch of money that he'd laundered. So, great movie, by the way. It is a great movie. Yeah. Awesome movie. Um, so if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend you check it out. But um, yeah, and I find it very interesting that they were like, oh, the ransom money, he invested it in certain things. Well, as we have seen with when they discovered that money in like the 80s that was buried, you know, they had all the serial numbers. So it's like, if you saw these investments that someone had made with the serial numbers wouldn't that be enough for you to be like this is this this is the guy you know right. what i mean like you would right. think that would be like a huge red flag like oh hey where'd this guy get this money that you know we marked that <laughs> we know money. was part of the ransom you know what i mean right. like right so if that was true why wouldn't they have used that as you know, a huge win. Like this is, this is the guy, you know, like there's, there's no doubt about it. And if it isn't him, where did he get the money? Right. And that's, you know, that's the, which I just thought about that while you were talking and there's a lot of laws now to where you can't go and deposit anything over $10,000 without yep. having some kind of identification as to where you got the money. Right. Yep. So, I mean, this probably one incident probably influenced, while it might not have changed everything, it definitely influenced a lot of different things that we encounter now, right? Yeah. Like like you said, you can't just go into a bank and be like, here's $200,000. I'm going to deposit this, this, <laughs> right. this, this suitcase of cash into my bank account. You know, right. like, right. oh, that's totally cool. That's fine. Like, <laughs> hey, can you make me a swimming pool of this money real quick so I can dive into it? Yeah. You know, that, that, that style. Right. That just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, I just don't see it with this guy. I, while he's got the knowledge and the extensive know-how to do it, and I just, if we're going strictly based off of pictures, I just, I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you. 
So, Robert Rackstraw fit the FBI profile, and he had the skills to make a bomb and skydive. And we can't really dismiss any of these facts. So, what would the possible motive be for Robert Rackstraw to do this in the first place? Well, it had been five months since Robert was kicked out of the Special Forces training for lying about his rank, his medals, and saying that he was college-educated, when actually he dropped out of high school and never went to college. So, he is a known liar. Let's keep that in mind. So, right there, we have some motive, right? He got kicked yep. out for lying, and, he, and he's already a proven liar, so... Yeah, and, and it's like, you know, especially with serial liars, it's... It's usually about how much can I add to this to make the lie seem plausible without making it super like over the top, you know, like, and there's never a point where they're like, oh, yeah, I totally made that up because you can never go back once you're once you've started the lie. So there's and, and there's always this point where you once you start looking at things. You're like, well, that's a contradictory statement to what you did, you know, however long ago. So it's, yeah, if, if he was a known liar and was able to lie about, you know, his education and all these medals and things like that, of course, you'd have to question anything else he said. Right. From that point moving forward. Yeah. Robert sent his former brass a veiled threat that says, I can only hope that I will never use the training and education the Army gave me against the Army itself, as I would be a formidable adversary. Shortly after this is when the hijacking happened. Coincidence or not? What do you think? And, you know, so right there, he's already got the balls to... To yeah. threaten the U.S. government, you know, like, hey, fuck yeah. you guys, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to come after you guys pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty ballsy to I, just be like, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. So after the hijacking, Robert Rackstraw wanted to do more. He loved adventure and getting tangled up with authorities. He trained the Shah's pilots to fly choppers in Iran before Iran was known to be more radical. He printed and distributed phony checks to banks. He would steal cars as well as airplane and construction equipment. Then after disappearing with 22 cases of dynamite and weapons from an armory, authorities think he would sell them off to many different extremist groups of bombers. A few months later, Robert was captured, and he served two years of jail time. He had over 30 criminal titles while traveling in five countries with false identities. So, pretty much, that's it. I mean, Robert Rackshaw was a career criminal, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, with ties to the military, because being in the military doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a criminal. You're just a uniformed criminal, right? Yep. So... I don't know. What's your takeaways from Robert Rackstraw? Me, personally, I don't think it's him. While he might have the extensive knowledge, I'm just, I'm not sold on this guy. Yeah, and I feel like if it was him, with all the skills that he has, wouldn't he want to do something bigger? 
You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like he could have done something a little more grand. And based off what he said, you would think he would have done it more as something against the military as opposed to something against the government at large. And he doesn't strike... Or a corporation, right? Yeah. Like, he he didn't strike me based off everything that we heard as someone who would have sort of put any people, anyone outside of his own agenda in harm's way, if that makes sense. Like, he didn't seem like someone who would necessarily want to involve outsiders in um, the crime. Right. And that's, that's, you know, that's a good point is that while he was a criminal, he didn't really, you know, have a lot of partners and a lot of people that he, you know, it sounded like in his life. So he probably wouldn't want to harm people and he wouldn't want to put a lot of people in danger. And which is why, you know, somebody like this would probably be somebody who's very recluse or, or, you know, very antisocial. Yep. Yeah. He just didn't strike me as somebody who, considering the the types of crimes that he had under his belt, none of them were necessarily like violent crimes. Like any, so it, it would seem very out of character for him to all of a sudden threaten a plane full of people with a bomb in order to get the money that he wanted. So it just didn't see, it just, to me, that's kind of stood out like, well, he wasn't a violent criminal. So why out of all of a sudden would he be like, oh, I'm going to potentially kill, you know, a plane full of passengers. Not that I think he would have actually gone through with it, but just the idea that he would have, you know, even put people in danger in that kind of sense. So that was another thing that kind of stood out to me. Right. But then again, you know, you can't, that's the crazy part about conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you can't discount anything. Yep. So this guy could potentially be him, but you know, at the same time, we don't know and we're speculating and he could not be. So that's the fun part about conspiracy theories, right? Yeah. Well, and he's dead. So it's not like we could, we could ask him and be like, (laughs) Hey guy. (laughs) Right. Hey, so did you do this? Did you not do this? You're not going to tell us anyways. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I would think, I don't know. I would think somebody who pulled something off like this, unless they were one of those kind of people that didn't have that personality trait, but they would want that, that recognition, you know, that, that notoriety, you know what? I'm DB Cooper. I pulled this shit off. You know what I mean? And and I feel like his personality is like that. He would want that, that that accolade, I guess, in a sense, right? Yep. Of, hey, look at me and look what I did, especially on your deathbed. At that point, what do you have to lose? You're not going to go to jail. You're dying. Exactly. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with you. Like, he had enough of a narcissistic personality where I could definitely see him being like, you know, wanting that recognition of, you know, it was me. And now for some thoughts from Paige on Robert Rackshaw. I mean, there's no question that Robert loved the thrill of possibly being caught. He loved adventure and doing all of these things that he wasn't supposed to be doing. He just seemed to really love the thrill of everything. So I go back and forth with him because you could see him doing something like the D.B. Cooper hijacking, but at the same time, he's a liar, and I just tend to struggle with him personally. 
So, Robert had been married three times. He was a dad, a grandfather, and great-grandfather. He got a divorce from the third and last wife, but he kept living with her. They lived together in the rich Bankers Hill area of San Diego, California, for about 20 years. Now, Robert was an owner of a boat shop. He had a Coronado Precision Marine along with a 45-foot cruiser, and he named it Poverty Sucks. In 1978, he was asked if he was D.B. Cooper, and he said, quote, Could have been. Could have been. Well, before he died, he was asked again and again about being D.B. Cooper. People really wanted to know. And he said, quote, I'm probably one of the only people who can close the case. Now, he spoke with the cops in 2016 about the money that was found by the little boy. And he said, quote, I could be wrong, but I believe that's all that will be found. Thomas J. Colbert said that Robert Rackstraw even told his family that he was D.B. Cooper. The FBI told reporters back in 1971 that there's no way someone could have survived that jump. And that is another thing that I tend to personally battle with because anything is possible. I struggle with, could this person have survived that jump and no remains were ever found? Could they have been found by people that he knew? and that were waiting for him at this particular spot or area, and they dumped his body somewhere? There are so many possibilities about this case. But the FBI had secretly interviewed some witnesses who were farmers, and they said that there were three people that acted as D.B. Cooper's getaway accomplices that had a little plane ready to go, and when he got to the ground, they took off with him. So Thomas J. Colbert's team located two of these alleged accomplices. The money that was found was said by many people to private investigators that it had been put there by Robert to throw police and investigators off the trail and just confuse them. Robert did fly helicopters for an intelligence part of the U.S. Army's 1st Cavalry Division during the Vietnam War. He made friends with the CIA operative, and the two would go missing for days at a time on secret missions, according to LTC Ken Overturf, who was Robert's Vietnam commander in 1969. This is according to court records, that after his assumed 1971 hijacking of the plane, he was a pilot for the CIA's Air American and Lowe's. Ten years after that, he signed up to run undercover flights during the Iran-Contra affair in Nicaragua. Robert Rackstraw said to a friend on Facebook, quote, Everything I did for our government raised questions. Former U.S. intelligence officer and three-tour Vietnam codebuster Rick Sherwood 
was one of the guys on Thomas Colbert's team back in 2015. He examined six letters that were written by someone that claimed to be D.B. Cooper. These letters were to basically tease and taunt everyone after he just seemed to vanish. How Thomas Colbert got the letters was from the FBI's D.B. Cooper file using a court order. So, Rick Sherwood claims that the second letter that was sent was in Army Code. And he decoded the letter and he said it read, If catch, I am CIA. So, Thomas Colbert's theory is that the FBI cut off him and his investigative team's years of working with them because they were getting way too close to having so much information that could prosecute Robert Rackstraw, and the FBI did not want that to happen. According to Thomas, the FBI wanted to protect Robert's CIA missions that were going on overseas. Thomas stated, quote, It was a cover-up, and we now have the FBI's own files to prove Rackstraw was the prime suspect. Everything points to him. He was questioned by investigators in 1978, and he gave three different alibis, all proven to be false, but the FBI still let him remain free. After Robert passed away, his former lawyer, Dennis Roberts, said, quote, He's not D.B. Cooper. However, oddly enough, Attorney Dennis Roberts said that Robert Rackstraw was to blame for another unsolved airplane hijacking, which would make it seem like this is why he never sued anyone accusing him of being D.B. Cooper. Dennis Roberts said, quote, It would have meant that he would have to admit to the second unsolved hijacking. But by all reports that I've come across, and Kevin, as you mentioned in your episode, the D.B. Cooper hijacking is the only unsolved hijacking case. So which other unsolved skyjacking could Dennis Roberts even be referring to? That's super confusing to me. Even though Robert Rackstraw sat on his deathbed, the assumptions that he was D.B. Cooper were absolutely tearing his life apart. He remained playful and teasing about it until he took his last breath. He said, They say I'm him. If you want to believe it, believe it. So, in my personal opinion, which I know a lot of people will disagree with because it does seem like he could be D.B. Cooper, And of course, it's a possibility, but for some reason, I just get this feeling that he liked being considered a suspect. I think he loved the attention and thought he was a mysterious man carrying all these secrets to the grave, and he may just love that and found some kind of enjoyment out of having people really thinking that he was D.B. Cooper. However, it's always a toss-up because maybe he was. Well, that was Robert Rackstraw, and so now we're going to move on to another suspect that I feel like is another very viable candidate, and we'll go ahead and introduce him now. 
William J. Smith. So there was an anonymous U.S. Army data analyst that came to the conclusion that William was D.B. Cooper. And this part does get confusing, so kind of focus with me because there is a Dan Clare mentioned in this part and a Dan LeClaire. So it can get a little confusing, but try to stick with me on this. So this expert who remains anonymous read a book written by Max Gunther in 1985 called D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened? which played a huge part in this anonymous expert formulating his beliefs. Max Gunther wrote in the book that in 1972, a man who said he was D.B. Cooper got in touch with him. Well, this unknown mystery man ultimately decided to quit talking with Max. Therefore, Max had to unfortunately leave the story where it was, and tried to move on from it. However, a woman who said her name was Clara, then this was 10 years after Max's book, which actually went into detail about Clara and D.B. Cooper. So this Clara woman decided that she would reach out to Max and tell him that she was Dan LeClaire's widow, and that he was the mysterious man who told Max that he was D.B. Cooper. Max's book was basically called out for being bogus, and a lot of people never took it seriously, and they portrayed it as somewhere in between nonfiction and speculation. Now, there were some things in this book that were said to be fallacious. This was either due to Clara attempting to hide who she really was, or Max just pulling things out of thin air and writing about it as if it were true. An FBI agent even talked to Max Gunther, and he essentially sacked him and said he was highly unprofessional. However, the anonymous analyst was not moved by any of the doubts casted on Max. He believed wholeheartedly that Max was in communication with someone who was claiming to be D.B. Cooper. The analyst kept drudging along with his research and going down the rabbit holes until he came across a man named Dan Clare. Dan Clare died in 1990 and was a veteran of World War II. The more the analyst dug into the rabbit hole, the more he didn't think Dan Clare was their guy, but he believed that Dan's buddy and co-worker was the mysterious D.B. Cooper, and that is William J. Smith. William and Dan worked together at Penn Central Transportation. William passed away at the age of 89. However, his yearbook had an array of alumni who were murdered in World War II. There was a man that really caught the eye of the data analyst, Ira Daniel Cooper. So, Dan Clare and William Smith, they were both from New Jersey, and they both worked at a rail yard in Oak Island in Newark. 
The U.S. Army data expert discovered that William served in the U.S. Navy. William and Dan had all of this experience working on railroads, which is important because they could map out railroad tracks and find them with total ease. This means that would have assisted either one of them after parachuting from the plane to easily find a train nearby and hitch a ride back to New Jersey. The analyst said, I believe he would have been able to see Interstate 5 from the air. Also, there was a rail line at the time that ran parallel to the roadway. So that's, you know, that's another good theory is that after jumping out of the plane, disappear onto a train and you can pretty much at that point disappear to anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, because that was, we have to keep in mind this was during the 70s. So that was a time too where like with the plane, you just pay cash to you know, get to ride anything. And they didn't have very good records. You could give whatever name you wanted to be a passenger. And at that point in time, no one would have known that that's who it was when he got on the train. And, you know, who knows what kind of name he would have given to be able to ride the rails. And I feel like it'd be very easy to get lost amongst a bunch of passengers on a train especially if you're taking multiple trains. Right. And even if he didn't get on a passenger train, just disappearing onto a cargo train in mm-hmm. the middle of the forest after jumping off a plane, you know, and then jumping off in some little city, you know, outside some little town and disappearing within the community, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Exactly. And I feel like someone who would pull off um, a crime like this would be very adept at um, hiding in plain sight. Right. Being, you know, being that uh, your typical next door neighbor. Yep. No problems, you know, a wife, kids, picket fence, because, you know, that was, you know, the MO of, of the 70s was, you know, you got to, oh, well, then, you know, the free love and all that. But, you know, you got married and had kids and that's just, that's what you did, right? Yep. Yeah. The analyst has this theory that William Smith used his friend that died in World War II's name. He believes he called Max, and after that, the wife of William Smith, whose real name is Dolores, not Clara, took over the conversation after William stopped communicating with Max. The analyst thinks that maybe Dolores was in on everything this whole time. There was another reason why this could be the work of William Smith. He had a huge grudge against Penn Central. The place went bankrupt in 1970 and it put thousands of people out of a job, including William. Our Anon analyst says that he was probably furious with the corporate establishment and that anger and madness could have been motivation for William to come up with the plan of hijacking the airplane. What's really weird is that the FBI never responded to the data experts' research. 
I think that's because they pretty much had their own minds made up on D.B. Cooper being Robert Rackstraw. Or maybe they knew that William Smith could possibly be D.B. Cooper and they just didn't want to really acknowledge that or come to terms with it or something. I don't know. It's really weird. So, remember, Max said that he spoke to a man with the last name LeClaire. I know this can get so confusing. And before we keep going, I wanted to stop and talk about that for a second, is the the investigations, you know, part mm-hmm. of so many crimes from before. Even now, investigators, for whatever reason, hone in on one person or one theory. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. Like they don't branch out. They don't look everywhere else because, you know, like Paige said, they already had their mind made up. Yeah. Rackstraw was their main suspect. Why are they going to look anywhere else? Exactly. And it was interesting, the motivation that he had to commit this crime. Whereas I feel like with Rackstraw, there wasn't really a motivation for the crime other than his um, anger towards the military, which what, how does that transition over to corporate America, corporate America and specifically the airlines. So I can definitely see how William had more motivation to commit this crime, given that, you know, he'd lost his job and not only he lost his job, but, Thousands of other people had lost their jobs um, and kind of use this as kind of a screw you type of thing back at the corporate America. The establishment, the man. Taking down the man. (laughs) But, and that's, you know, I feel like that's more of a viable explanation for this crime. Like if you're looking for an explanation, it's got to be, you know, somebody going against, you know, They were pissed, you know, Boeing went bust in the area, Um, you know, so why, why I, like you said, I don't know why they would, somebody with, who's angry at the military would translate to the civilian world, right? They would go after the military and not some random airline for a couple hundred thousand bucks. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dan Claire and this other Dan LeClaire both just happened to live in New Jersey after being in World War II. Dan Clare was previously posted at Fort Lewis in Washington State, and that's 41 miles south of Seattle. The FBI concluded that D.B. Cooper knew his way around Seattle before he hijacked that plane. Okay, Kevin. You remember the clip-on tie that you mentioned that was left behind on the plane? Well, it had a piece of metal on it, which made the investigators think that he was possibly employed at Boeing. But the analysts thought someone who worked on railroads could have had that same type of metal. Going back to Max Gunther's book, he said that LeClaire attended a skydiving facility that was close to Los Angeles, California in 1971. It has only been recently that the FBI even let the public know that it is extremely likely that this D.B. Cooper character 
went to a facility just like the one Max talked about in his book. And there you go. More misinformation, more Mm -hmm. misleading the public, not sharing all the facts. And I understand investigations. You can't share all the facts because you potentially could lose the trial if you were able to take them to justice. But, Mm -hmm. you know, again, that just adds the fuel to that fire, you know, of... You know, you're you're misleading us. Why aren't you telling us everything? And again, more mistrust. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that he was so familiar with the area. Um, like going back to kind of knowing where to jump once he um, once they were like, we can't go to Mexico. There's no way we could do that without having to stop and refuel. Um, so you would have had they would have had to know if there was a backup where they could jump and still be able to kind of disappear, especially if they were very familiar with that area. Right. And you would have to be, especially with that forest, you know, jumping into and potentially, you know, on a, on a night where it was cold, there were storms and you still have to know where you're going to an extent to be able to get out instead of just dying in the forest. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, I have a picture of this one and this one, oh man, I feel like you couldn't get any closer. And exactly. again, we know it's a sketch and sketches aren't perfect, um, but they're damn near a spitting image of each other. Mm-hmm. Like the chin, the facial structure, the bone structure, like literally everything is spot on in my opinion. Yeah. Even like the placement of like the wrinkles under the eyes the wrinkles on the forehead, you know, like the, the frown lines, things like that. Like it's just spot the mouth, on. I mean, the nose structure, literally it's like, it's like you're looking almost in the mirror. Yep. The shape of the ears. Cause the ears are a little bit oddly shaped cause they do point out a little bit, but at the same time, like, yeah, it's basically just like an aged, an age progression of the sketch. It's pretty spot on. So as I was doing some digging for alternate suspects and so on, I thought this was funny uh, on this website that I had found, which I will link to the show in the show notes below. But there is uh, a theory out there that Don Draper for Mad Men is <laughs> D.B. Cooper, right? So... um Obviously, uh, uh, Don Draper isn't real, right? Mm -hmm. But at this point, neither is D.B. Cooper because nobody can figure out who he is, right? Yep. So I vote for Don Draper, but social media has brought it to my attention so kindly that uh, they think it's Loki because there's a scene in the new Loki show where he's sitting in an airplane uh, with sunglasses on and it looks just like him. So maybe yep. it's Loki. Yep. Yeah, it's hard. Who's to say? <laughs> <laughs> we could speculate for hours, right? Exactly. <laughs> any final thoughts, any closing sediments, your thoughts, opinions, theories, people it could be? I would say of the two that Paige discussed, my money's on William J. Smith. Like just based off the motive he would have had he would have had similar knowledge having served in the war you know um 
knowing his way around planes, having worked on them, knowing his way around railroads, knowing kind of where they were hidden. And even if you were in the air, you know, you would still know where to easily find them if you were uh, paratrooping in or parachuting in, you know, look at the sketch and look at the photos. <laughs> I just, of all the suspects, I feel like that's the guy. I am 100% with you. And I definitely agree that it would take somebody with an extensive knowledge of the forest of, of railroads of not even an extensive knowledge of jumping out of a plane, but just knowing, okay, where you need to jump and how to get to a place where you need to be to potentially get away from it. So out of everybody that I've discussed in my episode and we've discussed today, I definitely think William J. Smith is probably the likely the closest sus suspect that we'll probably ever see to solving this case. Yep. For some reason, even though so, so many people think Robert Rackstraw is the infamous D.B. Cooper, I really think it's William. I think the fact that he looks more like D.B. Cooper than Rackstraw is a huge factor for me. Um, but I'd also love your opinion on both of the pictures and the sketch together. I think that William had a better motive. I think that he probably did take the name of someone that died and used that name. I just think that that is more convincing to me, possibly, than the whole Robert Rackstraw um, story. I really think that Robert was just an attention seeker. Why don't you tell everybody again where they can f find you at, where they can find your podcast at, what you guys are about, and so on and so forth. Sure. Uh, thank you again for having me on the show today. Um, once again, I'm Lindsay from Yield Crime Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod, and we're on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. Uh, you can also visit our website if you want, which is yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're basically on pretty much any of the podcast apps and platforms that we have out there. Um, we release episodes every Wednesday and then every couple weeks we release uh, special segments on Saturdays called, can you crack the cramp word um, where we will actually be having one in the end of this month, I believe the end of July where Kevin was kindly on. And uh, <laughs> that was very fun. It was on. fun. That was, that was, uh, it's an interesting subject because in which when, when this episode released, you guys will hear it, but, um, they, there's say, you know, there's words that people say from, from that, that time period that you would think one thing and it's like completely different. Oh yeah. It's like completely in left field. Like the, like there's no way you would have made the connection with that Victorian slang to what it actually meant. So um, that's probably one of my favorite segments to do is to have people on and see if they can crack the cramp word. So <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of about our show and where you can find us. And thank you again for having me on. Not a problem. And before we go, I have one question for you. Do you sure. mind answering? Sure. If you could be one sandwich condiment, what would you be and why? Mm. 
what sandwich condiment would I be? I'd be spicy mayo because I'm a little bit sassy. Spicy mayo. I yes. like it. So Lindsay from the Yield Crime Podcast is spicy mayo. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks for coming on. I'm glad we got to sit down and do this. Um, everybody, make sure you go and check her out. Like she said, towards the end of the, this month in July, um, you're going to get a, a a bonus episode for me because yep. I went on her podcast. So, um, But again, thanks for coming on, and I hope you have a good day. You as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.